What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. I'm Anna Kasparian, joined by Nando Vila, bringing you in with that happy-sounding music. I wish I was as awake and uh, peppy as our opening song is, <laughs> but I'm not. But we're going to have a great show. We are going to have a great show. Yeah, I was woken up at three in the morning by my dog just having like a retching fit and vomiting. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. And, you know, yeah. But she's okay. She's she's doing fine. Uh, but yeah, so I was woken. You know, I usually need to get my beauty sleep Friday nights for weekends. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I had I I was interrupted in that. So I may be slightly less beautiful. I was caught up in a very passionate game of cranium uh, What's while that? drinking. <laughs> cranium is a board game. It was the first time I had ever played it, but it was nice. You know, um, I'm kind of vaccinated. I've gotten my first shot. Um, My friends are fully vaccinated. They work in the entertainment industry. Well, I guess we do kind of as well, but you know, they're unionized. Are you not entertained? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, But they're unionized and in order to get back to work in person, like they've had to be fully vaccinated. So few of us got together and decided to play board games. And I forgot how much I enjoy being around people, drinking, eating. And before I knew it, it was like, midnight. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I, you know, I woke up in a panic today. Poor Kale had to do a lot of last minute work because of our um, late submissions uh, to the show, yeah. our, our graphics and video requests. But you know what? It's going to be a freaking fantastic show because I'm going to do a deep dive on Colombia and what's happening on the ground there. Nando, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about the patent waiver for the coronavirus vaccine and all the ins, all the outs, all the what have yous and everything around. Because I see it as probably the biggest story in the world right now, just the vaccine rollout around the world. So, yeah, I'm excited to get into it. There's a a girl boss twist to that song, uh, to that story that you do not want to miss. So um, there always is. (laughs) Always is. And uh, we're going to be talking to Doug Henwood for our interview segment. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, He's going to talk about the elites and um, the financial markets, which I just watched this incredible interview that he did three years ago um, on C-SPAN. He was talking about uh, public pensions um, and what's happening uh, with them essentially being managed by private equity firms. I want to ask some questions about that. Seems dense, but it's actually really important when you talk about uh, union power, labor power, and how it gets influenced um, by capitalist markets. Uh, But before we get to all of that fun stuff, Nando, I think that now would be a great time to talk about Verso. Yes, you know, because it's a new month, we're in May, and you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in May, you'll get these four books. The Last Man Takes LSD, Foucault and the End of Revolution by Mitchell Dean and Daniel Zamora, White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fascism by Andreas Malm and the Zetkin Collective, Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organization by Rodrigo Nunes, and Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel by Dominique Ede. Nice. That looks pretty good. Everyone go check out Verso. 
All right. So Nando, you're up first today with your decode and it's fitting because you're right. This is the most important story um, that isn't really getting as much attention as it deserves, but you're about to do your deep dive. That's right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I mentioned it's the biggest story in the world. You know, the, the effort to manufacture and distribute the coronavirus vaccine. Now, here in the U.S., the rollout has been surprisingly quick, but the vaccine rollout globally has been remarkably unequal um, as the world's richest countries have gotten the vast majority of the world's vaccines while COVID still rages on in places like Brazil and India, which is seeing a staggering number of cases and deaths in the last few weeks. Well, this week saw some big news on that front. President Biden siding with leaders across the globe to waive pharmaceutical giants' patents on COVID-19 vaccines. This is really important. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai made the announcement yesterday saying the Biden administration's goal is to, quote, get as many safe and effective vaccines to as many people as fast as possible. The move could help save thousands of lives in countries like India and Brazil, where officials are grappling to contain new waves of the coronavirus. That's right. The Biden administration reversed its position from just a month ago when it blocked an initiative led by India and South Africa at the WTO to waive COVID vaccines patent protections. This came after months of massive pressure from the global south. It also came shortly after a video of candidate Biden promising healthcare activist Adi Barkin that he would waive all patent restrictions on the vaccine while he was on the campaign trail. The World Health Organization is leading an unprecedented global effort to promote international cooperation in the search for COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. But Donald Trump has refused to join that effort, cutting America off from the rest of the world. If the U.S. discovers a vaccine first, will you commit to sharing that technology with other countries? And will you ensure there are no patents to stand in the way of other countries and companies mass-producing those life-saving vaccines? Absolutely, positively. This is the only humane thing in the world to do. This guy's whole idea of America, America on its own, is meant America alone. We're out there by ourselves. What's he doing? It lacks any human dignity, what we're doing. So the answer is yes, 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 yes. And it's not only a good thing to do, it's overwhelmingly in our interest to do it as well overwhelmingly. Thank you for that commitment. So yes, yes, yes. At first, the Biden administration did not fulfill its promise, but like I said, it reversed course. Now, the pharmaceutical companies were obviously not happy about the news as their stock price collapsed within minutes of the Biden administration's announcement. Vaccine makers taking a hit in the last hour of trading after the Biden administration said it supports waiving patent protections for COVID vaccines that would effectively hand over the secret recipe for these life-saving vaccines to other manufacturers, possibly in other countries, to make them. Shares of Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax all dropping sharply from their highs of the day. Now, the news came as a genuine shock, given the U.S.'s history in enforcing drug patents around the world, especially with regards to Africa's efforts to manufacture desperately needed HIV drugs in the 1990s. And the American, as well as European, position to vaccine patent restrictions came in stark contrast to China and Russia, the countries who our media constantly tells us are the big bad evils in the world, but have actually been engaging in vaccine diplomacy. 
countries have pre-ordered nearly 4 billion doses of coronavirus vaccines from Western drug makers. Some wealthy nations have even secured enough doses to cover every person in the country multiple times. But developing countries that don't have much money to buy vaccines or the technology to develop their own are at risk of being left behind with nothing. So China and Russia are stepping in with vaccine diplomacy. In one deal, Beijing will sell coronavirus vaccines to Pakistan in exchange for testing them in the country. Official statements from Beijing suggest a willingness to blur their humanitarian and foreign policy objectives. While Russia is pursuing global prestige, it's boasting that 50 countries are interested in its COVID-19 vaccine. Russia, bajo el liderazgo del presidente Vladimir Putin, trae nuevamente alivio al mundo. Yeah, Russia's vaccine, known as Sputnik V, has proved remarkably effective and has been crucial for Latin American countries hammered by the virus. Once much criticized, Russia's Sputnik V vaccine has now joined the international arsenal of vaccines to combat the pandemic. In Latin America, Sputnik V seen as a lifeline. Shipments of desperately needed doses arriving to battered countries across the region. Yeah, so now the U.S. has dramatically changed its tune and will engage in negotiations with the World Trade Organization to lift patent restrictions. But will this change anything? Well, the newly single Bill Gates has some thoughts about that. And in terms of that, there's been some speculation that the changing intellectual property rules um, and and allowing these vaccines, as you say, the the recipe for these vaccines to be shared would be helpful. And do you think that would be helpful? No. Why not? Well, there's only so many vaccine factories in the world and people are very serious about the safety of vaccines. And so moving something that had never been done, moving a vaccine from, say, a, a... J&J factory into a factory in India, that it's novel. It's only because of our grants and our expertise that can happen at all. The, the thing that's holding things back in this case is not intellectual property. There's not like some idle vaccine factory with regulatory approval that makes magically safe vaccines. <laughs> He's so funny, Bill Gates. You know, he says he opposes lifting the patents on the grounds that there just, you know, there aren't these factories lying around who could just make the vaccine. But reporting from Li Fang at The Intercept contradicts the Microsoft billionaire. He he writes, except it is exactly like that. Factory owners around the globe from Bangladesh to Canada have said they stand ready to retrofit facilities and move forward with vaccine production if given the chance. We have this production capacity and it's not being used, said John Fulton, a spokesperson for Biolis Pharma, a company based in St. Catharines, Ontario, that produces injectable cancer treatments. Fulton noted that Biolis has spent years buying equipment to produce biologics and it's uniquely prepared to start getting ready to produce vaccines. The company, which Fulton said is best suited for replicating the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, could produce as many as 20 million vaccines per year, he estimated. Abdul Muqtadir Chair and Managing Director of Incepta, a pharmaceutical firm based in Dhaka, Bangladesh, has told reporters that his firm has the capacity to fill vials for 600 million to 800 million doses of vaccine per year. He has reportedly reached out to Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and Novavax 
Now is the time to use every single opportunity in every single corner of the of the world, Mutadir told the Washington Post. These companies should make deals with as many countries as possible. Other firms in South Korea and Pakistan have also reportedly expressed an interest in producing vaccines or vaccine components. Now, it is true, nevertheless, that lifting the patent alone will not be enough. The rich countries still need to help in boosting production capacity for the vaccine. Over at Responsible Statecraft, Sam Fraser writes... While the administration's announcement is undoubtedly good news, crucial questions remain. Notably, Thai's statement does not say that the U.S. will support the specific proposal put forward by India and South Africa. This suggests that the United States may advocate for a modified or narrower plan in WTO negotiations. Thai's announcement states only that the U.S. will support a waiver for vaccines, not for treatments and medical supplies as included in the earlier proposal. To maximize the benefits of a waiver, the Biden administration must be pushed to support the broadest possible proposal, ideally including COVID treatments and medical supplies. Most importantly, the waiver will require follow-on action in the form of technology transfer and information sharing. While patents are a primary barrier to broader vaccine production, New manufacturers will also need access to key technologies and production information. Now, like I said, the Biden administration's reversal came as a surprise given America's recent history in enforcing IP protections around the world. His own record as a senator and the myriad of ties his administration has to Big Pharma, as David Sorda laid out in a piece for The Daily Poster. So what is going on here? Well, It is true that there has been pressure from the global south and from the left more broadly, and that may have had an effect. But the reality is that while Big Pharma specifically opposes this, the capitalist class as a whole largely supports it because ending the global pandemic is necessary for the free flow of goods and services that makes the global economy hum. Take India, for example, which is being absolutely battered by the coronavirus fight right now. According to the Office of the United States Trade Representative, India is the U.S.'s ninth largest trading partner. U.S. goods and services trade with India totaled an estimated $146 billion in 2019. Exports were $58.6 billion. Imports were $87.4 billion. And in fact, many of in America's investor class have been pushing for the patent waiver behind the scenes. You see, these big investors have diversified portfolios. They don't just make money when pharma makes money. They need the rest of the economy to recover as well. And according to a report in the Financial Times, quote, the world's biggest investors are urging drug makers to collaborate on developing a coronavirus vaccine to end a crisis that has unleashed market turmoil and hammered returns for pension funds across the world. BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, Fidelity Investments and sister company Fidelity International, Aviva Investors, Janice Henderson and Amundi, Europe's largest asset manager, all told the Financial Times that they want drug companies to put aside any qualms about collaborating with rivals. Quote, an unprecedented global crisis requires unprecedented global coordination in response, said Mirza Beg, global head of governance at Aviva Investors. So that is likely why the Biden administration feels comfortable taking the remarkable step that it took this week, but not so fast. In order for the WTO to waive patent restrictions, there needs to be unanimity. And at least one head of state came out against the Biden administration's move. America's support and patent waiver is a big win. But now Germany has thrown a spanner in the works. Chancellor Angela Merkel has opposed the waiver. She issued a statement which said, and I'm quoting, the protection of intellectual property is a source of innovation and it must remain so in the future. Listen to her spokesperson. 
The U.S. proposal to remove patent protection for COVID-19 vaccines has significant implications for the vaccine production overall. However, the limiting factor in vaccine production is production capacity and high-quality standards, not patents. So even during a global health crisis, Germany wants to keep patents locked. That's right. The world's ultimate girl boss, Angela Merkel, who many saw as the true leader of the free world during the Trump years, came out strongly against waiving vaccine patent protections. And Germany could single-handedly block the waiver at the WTO because, again, they need unanimity. Interesting, right? Well, let's go back to what I just said about the pharma investors and their diversified portfolios. Well, according to a tweet by Martin Schmaltz, an economist at the University of Oxford, quote, fun fact. The German vaccine manufacturer, BioNTech's largest shareholders, only benefit from BioNTech profits. They don't hold huge stakes in the rest of the world's equities. You know what? It just really goes to show that you really can't go wrong with Thomas Ferguson's investment theory of politics. Look it up. But still, regardless of the motivation, this is a very positive step. It is, in a sense, the beginning of the end of the global pandemic. There is still a lot to do in terms of manufacturing and distribution, but waiving the patents is a crucial first step. And taking a step back, it sets a pretty important precedent, one that worries at least one pharma CEO. The news grabbed the attention of a former Allergan CEO, Brent Saunders. He tweeted in response, who will make the next vaccine the next time? Brent Saunders is now the chairman and CEO of Vesper Healthcare, joins us now on the Fast Line. Brent, always great to get your perspective. Yeah, thanks for having me, Melissa. Do you think that's the way the industry will read this? You're ripping away our intellectual property, basically, whenever you want to, and what's the incentive to have it in the first place? Well, well, I mean, I was being rhetorical on, on Twitter, but, but I do think it's a slippery slope, and, and the more we erode our intellectual property protections in the United States, the more we, we decline as a knowledge-based economy. And so it, it, when you're talking about investing billions of dollars to try to solve unmet medical need or cure disease, why would you want to rob companies of the intellectual property protections that, that come with that investment? And, and this is not about getting poor countries vaccines. This is about political theater. You know, and he is probably right that this will be a disincentive for private companies to develop drugs and vaccines. But is that such a bad thing? In fact, I argue that we should probably throw more soap on that slippery slope to make it even slipperier. slipperier. You know, it was the profit motive itself that left the U.S. that left us vulnerable to a global pandemic in the first place. Scientists have warned about the risk of a novel coronavirus for years. The technology for the vaccine was there. So why wasn't it developed? Well, because it was too much money up front and the returns were too risky for private companies. You see, you could spend billions of dollars developing the vaccine and then the pandemic may or may not come for another decade or two decades. But governments didn't step in to fill the gap until it was too late. Removing the profit motive entirely from global health will allow us to make the kind of public investments we need to prevent this kind of thing from ever happening again. Snaps to that. Definitely agree with your um, assessment. You know, what's also pretty depressing um, 
was the fact that I allowed myself to have a moment of hope in regard to the Biden administration. But as you perfectly laid out, it wasn't public pressure, but rather pressure from capital <laughs> that persuaded him to change his mind on lifting or waiving um, the patent. Again, it's depressing, um, but it's the reality of the situation. It's better to know about it than to be delusional about how much power uh, we really have. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention is just how savvy both Russia and China are in their efforts to carry out their foreign policy interests, right? In the United States, we use brute force. Uh, we use military power, whereas in this case, uh, they're clearly using uh, collaboration, uh, humanitarian efforts, diplomacy in order to accumulate power for themselves. Like, there's really no question about that. Um, and it's, in my opinion, a much smarter move. Um, and then one final thing that I'll mention um, you know, Brent, Brent Saunders, the, the CEO of Vesper, you know, it's, it's true that, and I agree that if you, if they feel that patents can be waived um, by governments just willy nilly, sure, I guess it does create a, a disincentive to create these uh, vaccines. But what always gets left out of the conversation, or at least what the follow up I would love to see from reporters who are handling those types of interviews is, where did you get your seed money from? Right. Because they talk about like, oh, we just take on a tremendous amount of risk in developing these drugs. But there's never a conversation about where the funding for the research and development for those drugs really came from. They act as though they're investing their money into these, um, you know, risky, um, these risky developments. But that's actually really not the case. Yeah. And this is true, not just for manufacturing drugs and vaccines. I mean, this is just a very kind of, um, stark case in which the the public sector actually funded a huge percentage of the of the vaccine development um and these private companies expect to keep all the profits even though they 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 did none of they, they put in none of the risk um but that's that's kind of been par for the course for a long time um in capitalist development for for a while now the, the truth is that a lot of these very capital intensive um you know developments were done by the public sector um, and then kind of privatized for profit for uh, private companies. Like, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's the case of, for example, GPS, right? GPS was de developed by the U.S. military. Um, it's a key ass. It's like a key te technological component of something like an iPhone or any smartphone, right? Um, that was developed by the public sector and then essentially handed to private corporations to profit off of, you know, mm -hmm. that that's just like a, it, the private sector would have never have developed GPS uh, because it was just, it required so much upfront money for unclear returns because it may not have worked out or it was just too risky. Um, so they would never have done it. It was done. I mean, obviously the U S military is not the best way to, to do these things, but it right. is better than, you know, than, than just, a private company, which would never actually do it. Um, but we, we essentially uh, socialize investment and research mm -hmm. and development and then privatize the profits for, for, for the few it's, it's incredibly infuriating. And this, this example, which is such, so stark, right? I mean, so, so many things about the coronavirus just kind of reveal fault lines within the system. Um, and our job, I guess, is to essentially highlight them and then point out that this is kind of how everything, you know, everything has been working. It's just slightly less obvious when it's, you know, things like an iPhone. Um, yeah. But, 
but yeah, I mean, it, it, this one, you know, this this could be a slippery slope. I mean, I, I hope it becomes the slipperiest of slopes, um, that the slope gets slipperier and slipperier um, because we, we cannot allow private corporations to be the only um, entities developing much needed drugs and vaccines because often the profit motive, I mean, not often, but the vast majority of the time, the profit motive is at odds with public health. The kinds of drugs mm-hmm. that are profitable are not necessarily the ones that provide the best outcomes in public health. And certainly vaccines are very non-profitable because they essentially make people immune to the disease. Therefore, you don't have to treat them um, for the disease. Therefore, you can't make money off of them. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, I think you're so right. I mean, this is it's an important story, not only because of the nature of the coronavirus pandemic and and how many lives have been um, lost, needlessly lost from uh, this nonsensical system that puts profit over um, human lives, but it highlights exactly why privatizing certain things like the pharmaceutical industry, like the healthcare industry, like these hospitals um, in the United States that had no incentive to have, you know, hospital beds that would typically just sit empty, right? It would cost money, but it, you know, they decided, no, we don't need it. Uh, Even if there's a global pandemic, we'll deal with it. We'll cross that bridge when we get there, which is part of the reason why we were so um, embarrassingly um, ill-prepared for the pandemic. Um, The system set us up that way. Um, And as we can see, like there's unrest all across the globe and the, the through line, what you're noticing with most of these demonstrations is the fight against what privatization has done, um, how it, yeah. how it's put most people at such a severe disadvantage during this global pandemic. Um, so while the unrest is sometimes hard to watch when you see the uh, brutal force used by local police, for instance, um, at least you see people rising up and 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 say, showing that they're aware of what needs to change. Um, so that's, I think, a silver lining. And you know what? That takes us to Colombia. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about what's going down in Colombia. Last week, one of our viewers asked us to weigh in on Colombia. And to be quite honest, I didn't feel comfortable enough to share what my thoughts were yet. I wanted to make sure I really understood what was going on on the ground. And I have a pretty good idea now. But in order to really understand what's happening in Colombia today. We obviously need to go back decades and decades to to put everything in historical context. So let's do it. Protests have gripped the country of Colombia, where dozens of demonstrators have been killed by the country's militarized police force. Initially, the uprisings were a response to the conservative government's proposals to implement sales taxes in the form of a VAT tax on everyday items. I think the tribunal's decision further angered people to come out. We're dealing with the worst government proposals in decades. People are hungry and desperate for help, not more taxes. The reform proposed by President Ivan Duque's government would raise taxes paid by people and businesses, including the tax on basic food items that were so far exempt. It would tax middle-class pensions, utility bills, and even funerary services. But much like the Yellow Vest movement that occurred in France just a few years ago, what happens, what's happening in Colombia right now, um, and the reaction to the proposed taxes was just the straw that broke the camel's back. In reality, economic anxiety was 
a problem in Colombia even before the pandemic hit. Right now, about 40% of the country is living in poverty. And so the coronavirus pandemic exacerbated economic anxieties that had already existed in the country of Colombia. And so a school teacher who took to the streets spoke to the New York Times and explained that this is not just about tax reform. This is about corruption, inequality, and poverty. And all of us young people are tired of it. In fact, the coronavirus pandemic has been especially hard for Colombians. Uh, Colombia is experiencing its third coronavirus surge with nearly 500 deaths a day on average over the past week, a higher per capita rate than India's. And we all know how devastating and bleak the situation currently is in India. Now, stringent pandemic lockdowns have been blamed for causing mass unemployment and throwing some 4 million people into poverty. And so as a result, President um, Ivan Duque's proposal to implement a VAT tax or better way of thinking about it as a sales tax on everyday staples really pushed Colombians to their breaking point. Colombia has been devastated by COVID-19, a soaring death rate that's almost reached 3,000 in the past week and an economy buckling under the strain of lockdowns. The working poor, especially hard hit. And now this anger, sparked by a government plan to raise taxes on many everyday items, part of a bid to rebuild the economy post-COVID. But after days of protests, the move was shelved by President Ivan Duque. Now, even though President Duque decided to rescind his ridiculous regressive taxation, people are still protesting because of the fact that the militarized police force met them with the type of brutality that they did. But security forces' response to the demonstrations, including military helicopters seen shooting at protesters below, has only intensified anger in the streets. At least 24 people have been killed, including a 17-year-old who kicked a police officer on a motorbike, then got shot. So dozens of people have been killed uh, during these protests, anywhere between 24 to 28 individuals. Uh, the numbers are still unclear. Uh, but what is unquestionable is that the police are indiscriminately shooting at these demonstrators. Uh, there are extrajudicial killings at the hands of these militarized cops. And so as a result, you're seeing people galvanized uh, by the very footage that we showed you. For instance, demonstrators now include teachers, doctors, students, members of major unions, longtime activists and Colombians who have never before taken to the streets. And as a result, as we see in other authoritarian uh, governments, there are members of Duque's uh, government who are now demanding that he takes extra actions in order to squash these protesters. Several people in the political party of President Duque are asking him to declare a state of siege, which would grant him broad new powers, essentially to clamp down on these demonstrators with even more brutality and force. Now, part of the reason why Colombians or Colombia's police um, happen to be as militarized as they are is because the United States government uh, decided to militarize them with weaponry, with training in order to fight the nonsensical and failed drug war. 
The United States quietly signed a deal with Colombia, its staunchest ally in the region and the biggest recipient of military aid in the hemisphere. The agreement grants the United States access to seven Colombian military bases for 10 years. We had received uh, since many years ago uh, really tremendous support from the United States government uh, consisting in, in technology training and advice in, in many fields, particularly in Omega Joint Task Force uh, Theater of Operation we, we have received uh, during the last five years uh, very important support. Now, this is where it's important to dig into Colombia's history to really understand the current moment. Now, that video was from 2009, kind of showing how the United States uh, was very involved in militarizing uh, law enforcement in Colombia. But it was done under this guise of fighting the drug war, when in reality, it was a cover to destroy left-wing militia groups known as FARC, for instance. That was one of the um, largest militia groups at the time. Now, Colombia has experienced a decades-long civil war um, that began in 1964 and ended with a treaty in 2016. The treaty isn't really being honored by the right-wing Colombian government, and that's also adding to the ongoing tensions um, and the demonstrations that we're seeing on the streets today. After decades of an armed conflict between government forces, paramilitary groups, and guerrilla insurgencies like the Revolutionary Armed Forces in Colombia, also known as FARC, a peace deal was reached known as the Havana Peace Agreement. Cuba, in fact, uh, brokered the deal. Eventually, in November 2016, the parties agree on a renegotiated compromise and sign a new peace treaty. The key points in the 297-page document cover transforming FARC into a political party, opening democratic participation for the opposition, combating drug trafficking, compensating victims, and a special tribunal for gross human rights violations. But perhaps most importantly, the agreement plans to eliminate the underlying cause of the war by way of comprehensive land reform. January 2017, the end of an era is approaching in Latin America. The continent's oldest guerrilla group sets out on its final march to hand over its weapons to UN inspectors. It is a march into an uncertain future. Will the government comply with the terms of the agreement? Now, it's important to understand that FARC, um, this Marxist leftist uh, militia group in Colombia, had one main goal, and that main goal was to overthrow capitalism. Uh, they were represented by farmers, individuals who saw uh, how disastrous and destructive the inequality in the country was, and they wanted to boot multinational corporations out of the country, uh, which, of course, was taking advantage of its natural resources for profit. The United States did not like that. And so what is typically talked about as this friendly mutual agreement between the Colombian government and um, this guerrilla group was really a situation in which FARC had no choice but to surrender. Um, and by then, it's clear that the U.S.-led efforts to destroy FARC had worked. Take a look. When the now President Santos was appointed as Minister of Defense in 2006, he started an aggressive campaign against FARC. 
A new breed of generals benefited from the president's aggressive approach. Generals like Leonardo Pinto. Las FARC tienen un plan estratégico diseñado desde los años 80. Dentro de ellos era el crecimiento aproximadamente a tener 40.000 hombres, 80 frentes, algo más de 20.000 hombres en armas. La estrategia que se llevó a cabo por el señor presidente Uribe y que se mantiene todavía con el actual gobierno permitió un fortalecimiento importante de las fuerzas militares. Las FARC tenían casi 20.000 hombres y hoy en día en general en el país tienen algo así como 7.000 eh, terroristas en armas. The use of drones and the increase of the air bombings has depleted the guerrilla forces. On May the 23rd, a day before the third round of peace talks began, the Colombian Air Force bombed a FARC camp in the far west, killing two prominent commanders and 19 militiamen. FARC was reliant, heavily reliant on the drug trade in order to make money, really, um, with the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, with a lack of support from other leftist governments. FARC was really reliant on taxing drug traffickers um, and in some cases, yes, peasants as well, uh, in order to have enough money to function um, as a guerrilla group. And so when the United States engaged in this drug war in Colombia, they did so under this false pretense of wanting to combat addiction and to help people. The global drug trade is so dangerous and so awful. They could have easily legalized and regulated drugs in the United States to disempower uh, these cartels in Colombia, but they decided to use brute military force um, against FARC in order to get them to, to bend to their will, get them on their knees, and to agree to this peace deal with the Colombian government. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the deal, the number one priority for FARC was uh, a redistribution of land in an effort to uh, root out the disastrous inequality in the country. But unfortunately, it's become more and more clear that since that treaty was signed in 2016, the Colombian government has very little interest in honoring it. Following the treaty, Ivan Duque, the uh, conservative presidential candidate, won the 2018 election, uh, and there were already red flags indicating that he had no intention of honoring the deal. It's the day after elections in Bogota. The conservative candidate, Ivan Duque, is made president with 54% of the votes. And yet the 42% for the left-wing challenger Petro is a clear sign of political change. But what does Duque stand for? He hails from the business elite and represents the interests of the big landowners. Is he able or even willing to serve the greater social good and push through the reforms laid down in the peace treaty? The new government will be set up by the far right. They're an elite who are convinced that they have a sole claim to power and that this power allows them to skim off any profits and economic gain for themselves. We have one million farmers with no land, plus seven million displaced farmers who have come to the cities and now live in abject poverty. The larger estates, 500 hectares or more, belong to 1% of all landowners. 
And this 1% owns 85% of the land in Colombia. This is the greatest inequality in all of Latin America. And this is the root of all the unfairness that you see today in everyday life. So Colombia had an incoming right-wing government. At this point, uh, FARC has disbanded and is completely disarmed. And they have no power to ensure that the land reforms will be enforced. So anyone with common sense could read the tea leaves. The implementation of the peace accord is going awfully slowly. The land reform, for example, is proving extremely difficult. There's been no progress. Farmers with little or no land have not been given more land to plant crops on, as had been promised in the agreement. Plus, more than 60 of our fighters who surrendered their weapons were subsequently killed. This means that the agreement is in danger of failing. When the peace deal was signed, I was relieved. I was convinced that the government would choose the peace. But it seems they are neither keeping their promises to the FARC nor to the people of Colombia. If they were genuinely interested in peace, they would have not let multinational corporations into the country. They would promote rural development and growth projects. And as the years go by, uh, 2016 was a while ago, uh, the anger, the frustration, the tension between the Colombian government and its people grows. And many, of course, began to question whether this was a good faith effort by the government to uh, engage in a real peace deal that included land reforms, or if it was just a way to disempower uh, the leftist militia group known as FARC. The war waged by the extreme right and the big landowners for 50 years enabled them to rob the farmers of 7 million hectares of land. They see this as the spoils of war, and as the victors, they refuse to hand them back. What they were ultimately interested in was to disarm or demobilize the guerrillas, as they called it, and sell the land to multinational corporations and big businesses. And when you look at Colombia today, it's very clear that very little has changed in regard to land reforms and inequality. Inequality has continued to grow. And when you look at how multinational corporations are taking advantage of its natural resources, you get a better understanding as to why the people of Colombia are furious. The industrialization of agriculture and the exploitation of natural resources seem to enjoy absolute priority. The devastating consequences of this development are all too visible here, at the largest coal mine in South America, Eserejon, the giant mountain. A consortium of multinational companies from Switzerland, Britain and Australia exports 32 million tons of coal from here every year, with over 90% destined for Europe. More than 2,000 mining and energy companies have operations in Colombia and are largely given a free hand by the government, with dramatic consequences for both local people and nature. 
So when you look at the statistics, the numbers, and you understand the context uh, of of the anger that people are feeling in in Colombia right now, um, these demonstrations make a lot more sense. It also makes a lot more sense that uh, they're met with this militarized police force, considering all of the help that they've gotten throughout the years by its ally, the United States. Now, the top 10% of the country's earners received almost 40% of the country's income, which is 10 times what the bottom 20% earned, and that's according to the World Bank. I give you those numbers because it's important to understand that globally, it's understood that inequality is the top threat to democracy. In fact, speaking of which, there was a poll that was just commissioned by the Alliance of Democracies Foundation among 50,000 respondents in 53 countries. And they found that the single biggest cited threat to democracy is economic inequality. 64% of the respondents said that they felt inequality was the biggest threat. Now, uh, that's in regard to uh, domestically what, what is occurring within a country. But when it comes to the largest global threat to democracy, the majority of the respondents felt that the United States, not China, not Russia, but the United States posed the greatest threat to their democracy. And when you look at the U.S. involvement in Colombia and their efforts in destroying uh, left-wing militias in an effort to protect U.S.-based business interests and also European-based business interests, you get an understanding as to why respondents to the survey would feel that. Now, getting back to the current Colombian government and uh, Duque, clearly there's been fallout uh, when it comes to President Duque. His handling of the coronavirus has been disastrous. The way that he has proposed regressive taxation um, that would overwhelmingly hurt the poor has led to uh, additional fallout. But there's some positive news as well. Gustavo Petro, a left-wing former mayor of Bogota and a former member of the demobilized guerrilla group, now leads in the polls. Duque, limited by law to one term, cannot run for re-election. Now, Petro really had no chance, uh, you know, let's say a decade ago. Uh, FARC was not popular by any means, and there was a lot of um, unrest as a result of the ongoing war between the paramilitary groups and FARC. Uh, but what's interesting is that Petro, in many of the interviews that I've seen, understands how U.S. involvement in the country wasn't about rooting out uh, the actors in this drug war. It was really about implementing their own business goals and implementing their own foreign policy goals within Latin America. And the fact that he's aware of that, the fact that he understands that the system of inequality has been uh, disastrous for democracy and disastrous for the people of Colombia is a good sign. And you really need to understand why people are taking to the streets today, where these frustrations come from, um, in order to, you know, basically figure out like where the country needs to go in order to lead to real peace. It's, it's not about uh, one tax being rescinded. It's not about an economic proposal um, being, you know, forced upon the citizens of Colombia. It's really about this ongoing system of inequality that has hurt the majority of Colombians for decades and decades. Nando. Uh, that was a, remarkably thorough and excellent report. I got to say, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Colombia. I have a ton of Colombian friends. I've been there. 
I don't know, eight or nine times. Maybe I've, I've worked there. Um, it's a country I know well, um, and I have a lot of love for, but you know, it's, it's also, it, it is one of the most violent, uh, countries in Latin America. And certainly, um, that was always kind of its reputation, but it, it's reputation, the, the reputation for violence came, um, at least it was portrayed here as, you know, th- it was just like a dangerous place and that, um, there's drug trafficking and then there's this like weird civil war that's been going on for 40 years. Um, but as like Noam Chomsky writes about this a lot, like Colombia as the largest recipient of U.S. military aid in Latin America, like more than any other, more than all the other countries combined, um, also has amassed the worst human rights record um, from any Latin American country. And I'm not talking about like people like from the state, you know, the, the militarized state, which you described so well, which is basically at least the, the, the military apparatus, essentially kind of like a vassal system of of the united states is uh military apparatus um just unbelievably violent um and and like you said the the excuse of the of the civil war and fighting the drug war and things like that um often is used to target both environmentalists but also trade unionists you know like the mm-hmm. like uh, the um i remember like again back to chomsky's uh, writing about this like in the early 2000s when i started reading him in college um the uh if there's like a tally of like global trade unionists murdered, you know, in every, in any given year, right? Like they just, it's like a statistic. Um, often three fourths of the total global trade unionists murdered um, were in Colombia. Um, what? And again, oops. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, amazing. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's a remarkably unequal country. I think it's the second most unequal country in Latin America. Um, and, but again, it, it's, it's, it's it's remarkable to see that that this that the hegemony of of the right in Colombia, I mean, which it just dominates American uh, Colombian politics again in this in this sort of hyper militarized way, um, just a very militarized society that permeates through all kinds of. You, you really sense it when you're when you're there. The media, like it's just the, the the presence of the military is just is is very powerful and very, you know, prestigious in 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 some ways. Like that that seems to be. That seems to be breaking. I mean, it's the the coronavirus. It really is scrambling everything all over the world, and and you're seeing kind of um, political opportunities that were probably unthinkable just to, just a few years ago. I mean, like again, the fact that the, the left might win power in Colombia. Uh, I mean, that was not in the cards uh, just a few years ago. Like, not at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're exactly right. Um, so. Things are bad. There's no question about it. Um, but it, it also poses this opportunity. And so mm-hmm. I think uh, the, the people of Colombia and look, think about it. It's very similar to what we see in the United States with uh, the narrative being completely twisted. Um, so public support, of course, for FARC was very low because er- all you would hear about them is they're working with drug traffickers, that they're, they're uh, installing landmines. They're the ones who are causing all the violence. But when you look at the the statistics um, and and just the uh, uneven level of violence between the paramilitary groups and the guerrilla fighters, you'll understand that the narrative um, shared in the media was very much inaccurate. Um, and think of the paramilitary groups as like, 
literally law enforcement openly, transparently on a regular basis working with, I don't know, the Boogaloo Boys or whatever right wing militia we have here in the United States. Right. And Boogaloo Boys are kind of a joke compared to the paramilitary groups in Colombia. Yeah. But yeah, 100 <laughs> percent. But, you know, my just to like think about it, it's just like this open, brazen war against uh, the people of Colombia, the protesters and demonstrators that are out on the streets right now who are just sick and tired of yeah. living under the system of inequality. They want changes, the very changes that the government had agreed to earlier. Um, and they're not going to take this sitting down. And it's um, really inspiring to see that. Yeah. No, it's, it reminds me a lot of, we talked about Guatemala last week. It, it's, a, it's a very similar situation in which there was this kind of um, armed left-wing insurgency in, in Guatemala, but, and it was framed here in the United States for forever as this kind of like, you know, menacing, you know, evil force when the reality was that they were they were just being massacred left and right by by the government supported by by the United States military apparatus. Um, and, uh, you know, that that is kind of what what has been happening in Colombia for 40 years, essentially. So, um, yeah. yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's been a remarkable thing to witness. I mean, you know, the, the the response from the government to the protesters has not been surprising. I mean, it's just like I said, it's a it's a it's a pretty militarized society in 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 a lot of ways um and so they don't take kindly to this kind of thing <laughs> um, yeah. and and we're seeing that now well, let's um, get to our interview, uh, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Uh, we're joined by Doug Henwood. He is um, an editor over at Left Business Observer and is the host of Behind the News. His latest in Jacobin is our lead essay in the new print issue, and it's titled Take Me to Your Leader, The Rot of the American Ruling Class. Doug, thank you for joining mm. us. Oh, thanks for having me. So... Talk, talk to us about uh, the rot in the American yeah. ruling class and how it's different. Um, you know, I was I was listening to one of your interviews, um, and and you did kind of talk about how much the situation has devolved in recent years. So talk about how rotten that rot has really gotten. Well, you know, I guess the uh, the, the uh, point of comparison for this is the the wasps who ruled America from you know. Founding, really, but uh, they had their heyday uh, from the late 19th century into the mid to late 20th. Uh, and for, they were brutal. They were racist. They were imperialist. They were awful in so many ways. But there was a coherence to them, and they're able to uh, manage the system for the long term uh, in a way that uh, was you know, stable and at least concerned with uh, keeping things going uh, beyond the next quarterly earnings report. I think since then, they've been replaced by... Um, People are driven largely by money. Uh, we have a, a ruling class that doesn't have any kind of internal social coherence, uh, but um, is just trying to maximize uh, maximize its wealth. And uh, the le they let the society rot. I mean, they've gotten very uh, wealthy. Um, they're un unimaginably, unprecedentedly rich. Uh, I guess you could look back to the late nineteenth century of the Gilded Age uh, as a as a uh, as a precedent, but. The Gilded Age guys like tried to civilize themselves after a while into the early 20th century. These people are just, I think, vulgar, brutal, um, and uh, just utterly selfish. And uh, that's a good bit of the reason why um, we, we, the uh, the whole country seems to be falling apart physically and socially. Uh, it's just uh, driven by maximizing them, um, maximizing their profit in the shortest term without any regard for the consequences over the longer term. 
Yeah, the the old wasp patricians, like you said, are were awful, and but they all kind of knew each other. They all hung out at the same social clubs. They, their scions went to to school together, um, and they did have a little bit of like what we would call like noblesse oblige. Um, but and that has kind of gone by the wayside entirely. W- when did that change, and and how did that change? Well, several things happened. First of all, um, any kind of elite tends to rot over time. You know, they, um, <laughs> George Gilder had a funny passage. George Gilder came out of that class, uh, was a liberal Republican in the 70s, turned to the right and uh, became uh, a thinker for the Reagan uh, administration. Uh, but he has some funny bits about how, you know, the first generation, they make money. The second generation, they, uh, they, 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 they endow their philanthropies. And by the third generation, they're just like a bunch of drug-taking hippies and artists. Um, then, but also, you know, you had this... The, the wasp fortunes got old. Uh, they got divided uh, by successive waves of inheritance. Uh, they got undermined by inflation. Uh, the kinds of companies that they uh, used to run, uh, the old industrial heartland of the United States, uh, started uh, weakening in the 70s so that they lost that material basis of their uh, wealth. And then starting in the early 1980s, we saw this rise of a new, uh, um, a whole new generation of, uh, of just money-driven entrepreneurs, uh, the uh, the cowboys of Wall Street in the early 80s who disrupted the entire sweet arrangement that had been set up uh, in in the, uh, the golden years of the 50s and 60s and um, really got unprecedentedly rich. Uh, Forbes started publishing its lists of the richest 400 people, in, 400 families in the U.S. back in 1982. And then I think the minimum price of admission was about $300 million. Uh, now you can't even get on without billions and billions. Um, that's the, the amount of money that came in at the top of the society uh, was remarkable. And then we had this geographical shift from uh, the, the wasp based in the Northeast, uh, New England, New York area, some outposts in places like Pittsburgh and Cleveland, even to a degree San Francisco, uh, that you saw this shift towards Texas, Southern California, you know, the Sun Belt Revolution. Um, so there was that geographic shift that undermined wasp power. The Republican Party, too, was once you know, the natural um, political expression of that class. And uh, the, the right began to try to take over that party in the 1950s, uh, but were not really successful until uh, Reagan was elected president in 1980. Um, but you saw this, you know, the erosion of that traditional uh, um, moderate Republicanism of Eisenhower, the Northeast, um, Chase Bank, all those sort of um, pinnacles of, or foundations of wasp power really eroded. And you ended up with this extremely right-wing uh, uh, form, form in the Republican Party. Um, and um, a loss of any of that sense of what the wasp would call stewardship, that the idea that you know, you're know you just a custodian of property for the next generation, um, the, um, the, that, that didn't fit with the ethic of all these um, cowboy capitalists. So in the 1970s, there was this dramatic shift um, in the business class. And um, Rick Perlstein calls uh, this business class uh, the boardroom Jacobins. And in order to like really understand that, um, you, you got to understand the Powell mor- uh, memorandum. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, a lot of things went on in the 70s that um, laid the groundwork for uh, the, the move to the right. Uh, the Powell memorandum, I think that was 1971 or so. Uh, and he wrote it to uh, the, uh, the people at the Chamber of Commerce, uh, which was a very old style business organization that had sort of gone out of favor. 
um, it has since reinvented itself to be a pinnacle of very right-wing business uh, lobbying. But it, in those days, it was kind of sleepy and forgotten. But Powell was concerned uh, about the general anti-capitalist feeling throughout American society, that uh, we had become uh, disrespectful of business. Um, there was just no respect for our uh, our betters. Like, oh, and then, to some degree, they thought that they were helping to finance it, that uh, the universities that uh, they, they helped fund uh, were um, teaching um, communism um, or anarchism. And uh, Powell tried to organize the members of his class to do something about it. Uh, and you know, people pay a lot of attention to that particular memo as an important moment in this, um, this shift, but there are a lot of other things going on as well. Uh, the business class really began organizing in the mid-70s uh, in ways that they hadn't before. Um, they were disturbed by um, labor militancy. Uh, people forget you know, the idea that the 70s were this time of you know, bad music and bad hairdos and leisure, leisure suits. Um, but it was also a time of a lot of labor militancy. There were a lot of wildcat strikes um, in, the, um, in the early 70s. Uh, there was a lot of concern after the U.S. lost the Vietnam War that we were losing our imperial edge. Um, so there was a lot of alarm uh, at the top of the society that things were really slipping out of their control. Uh, and uh, the idea that inflation was, was really one of their major concerns. But I think you need a broader understanding of inflation than just a, a, an atmosphere of generally rising prices. It's also just the sense that things were slipping out of control, out of elite control. Uh, workers are developing an attitude. You know, uh, uh, um, There's a famous G, uh, GM plant in Lordstown, Ohio, where uh, the workers were getting high in the job and like damaging the equipment and uh, sabotaging the assembly line. Uh, this, uh, so there's a sense that... Uh, America needed a good talking to, uh, and um, that's when the business class really began organizing and pushing um, its uh, a much more conservative crackdown agenda. Now, I should emphasize that capitalists aren't always really good at organizing themselves politically. It's unusual that they do, in fact. Uh, they really need to be organized by political figures, uh, political parties, um, states people. Um, that, you know, it's the, they're, they're, the, the most capitalists are just so interested in money that they can't really think about how to um, organize politically. They have some instinctive reactions. They know what they do and don't like. But um, this was an unusual instance where the capitalist class really organized itself uh, to promote a political counter-revolution. And I must say it was highly successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you, you talk about how that um, the, the sort of shareholder revolution that became the the fashion in, in the 1980s and things like that led to this um, thinking, this extreme kind of, you know, obsession with money, but also just like the, the obsession with the next quarterly uh, quarterly earnings report. Um, and it, it's led to today where the ruling class seems more discredited than it than it has in in a long, long, long time. And um, this is leading to all kinds of social upheaval. Obviously, the there's the, the you know, I think you can explain the, the rise of right wing populists all over the world, uh, largely as a result of the ruling classes lack of legitimacy. Um, and, you know, obviously, like we we on the left don't like the ruling class, we don't, we, we don't like them to be popular or or have legitimacy but this we, we don't want them to um to enjoy prestige but 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 it also creates all these kind of social problems i think that the the you know the rise of anti you know the anti-vaxxers and things like that uh, are a result of of the ruling class's lack of uh crisis of legitimacy and like lack of trust in in institutions and 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 things like that um what are what are some of the other uh bad effects of 
this kind of crisis of legitimacy? Well, I think one of the important things, if we had a, a serious ruling class, I think they would be much more concerned about the climate crisis. Now, there's some signs that they are moving in that direction uh, recently, but, you know, they, the, the, the degree of this crisis and its threat to humanity and life, life on Earth uh, is so dramatic, uh, but it, um, they seem, you know, either uninterested in talking about it or uninterested in doing anything about it. Uh, and I would think a, a serious ruling class would be able to deal with it in, in ways that would preserve their power and their system. But in, you know, at least taking um, uh, some uh, cognizance of the fact that we're really um, facing a mortal danger to life itself. But there's just all this sense that, you know, everything is falling apart, that um, uh, until we have our socialist revolution and the proletariat controls everything, um, <laughs> and society is, um, you know, as, as, as hierarchical as ours, if you have a problem at the top end, um, there's going to be uh, some serious disorganization. Uh, and, you know, this could be productive. It does leave us an opening. Um, they seem very confused at this point uh, and not really, uh, as you say, they've really lost a lot of legitimacy. Um, which is remarkable because, you know, you go back to the 80s and the 90s was a time when, well, the 80s, they were really earning some kind of legitimacy because that was a time when the, the, the entrepreneur was heroized. And then in the 90s, you know, Bill Clinton really helped consolidate those gains by, uh, you know, sanctifying uh, the, the Wall Street frame of mind, uh, that whole new Democrat era where um, they were they were really going to be tough imperialists, but also, uh, also uh, um, very Wall Street friendly. Um, and now that all seems like a really distant memory um, that uh, Wall Street, um, um, <laughs> everybody wants to get rich by mm -hmm. buying Bitcoin now. But um, you know, the, the business class is not, uh, does not have that prestige that it did in the 80s and 90s. Um, uh, and a lot of people are just bitter and alienated and really um, sick of uh, working really hard if they can find a job at all for pennies. And uh, right. you know, I think you know, there's just a, the, a rising level of disgust and alienation and anger uh, and um, the elites don't seem really to know what to do about it. You have uh, perhaps some reformist turn uh, among some of them, but, you know, they really like their privilege and don't want to give it up. Right. I mean, you know, when you talk about how much the mood has changed among American workers, I, I, you can see it in the media and, and what does well on, for entertainment. I mean, the era of Pimp My Ride and MTV Cribs, it's over. <laughs> People are not interested. Um, I think that's part of the reason why, you know, reality shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians um, probably got off the air. Um, but, you know, one thing that is very noticeable is just how much the Democratic Party has increasingly become the party um, representing the elite class. Um, and, you know, I think it's become abundantly clear that the... Uh, the Roosevelt brand of Democrats doesn't really exist anymore. This is really more about um, protecting business interests as opposed to uh, looking out for the best interests of either constituents or the working class. Well, I'd say several things about that. One, um, you know, I, it's interesting to look at different factions of the ruling class. So there's a certain portion uh, that is the funding base uh, for um, Trump-style republicanism. Uh, a lot of those are... Um, relatively small business people or own uh, small um, uh, professional practices or such, they make a lot of money, but they're not really at the commanding heights of the economy or, or the political um, system in any way. Um, but then you have, um, you know, the more mainstream, the big banks, the Fortune 500, uh, and that's what used to be the core of the Republican Party. And with this, mm -hmm. um, you know, the gang of idiots and thugs who've taken over the Republican Party, um, the, the, that, 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 
um, that base doesn't really have a natural um, political expression to speak of anymore. So yeah, the Democratic Party, um, you know, the Hillary Clinton style Democratic Party um, really wanted to be and often was the uh, the political expression of that more responsible corporate class. But on the other hand, you know, you have seen the rise of um, a fairly left progressive wing within the Democratic Party that um, is um, challenging um, that 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 dominance. Um, that you know, obviously, Bill Bill Clinton style politics really has no constituency constituency to speak of anymore. Uh, and to to watch Biden um, propose trillions and trillions of dollars of social spending uh, is not something that uh, the Clintons would ever have done. And um, it's partly because um, there is this uh, vocal new. Um, wing of the Democratic Party that's that's forcing some kind of change. But, you know, they don't want it to change too much. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. There's this line from Tocqueville that the right used to like to talk um, about. Uh, they used to quote uh, during the days of Gorbachev when the USSR is reforming itself into oblivion, uh, that the most dangerous time uh, for a, uh, a corrupt or tyrannical regime is when it starts reforming itself. Um, so that, that gives me hope, you know, if we see this kind of reformist tendency within uh, the Biden crowd, um, then maybe um, that uh, leaves them open to something much more ambitious and transformative. Yeah, I like the idea of uh, Joe Biden as our as our Gorbachev, uh, yes. <laughs> reforming the system uh, into oblivion. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I want to ask about the 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 Biden reforms. I I share your um, surprise. I mean, I, I did I did not expect these you know trillions and trillions of dollars in social spending, um, and you know I I want to. I want to believe that uh, the, you know the effect of the Bernie San- the twin Bernie Sanders campaigns, the you know things like Jacobin, uh, you know all the, all this kind of new left energy um, that that has emerged in the United States, which is which is quite new, new given what what the state of the left was in the early two thousands or you know the nineties and things like that. Um, how much how much is a result of that, and how much is a result of just the 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 depth of the crisis post 2008, the, the, the structural kind of um, just the, the structural institutional crisis that we're, that we're facing. I mean, how, how much are those twin forces and do they, do they reinforce each other? Maybe, maybe is the, is the question. Yeah. I think, you know, this is a kind of all of the above situation. Um, you know, it's odd. I know several people who are among um, Biden's economic advisors. I know them from my old radical you know, radical economic circles. And here they are advising Joe Biden. I'm sure they've uh, uh, moderated their message some, but the, the fact that people that left uh, are now uh, in positions of power. Uh, you could be cynical and say that they're they're there to be silenced, but I think we're also seeing their influence in this trillions of dollars of social spending. You know, I think, you know, the Sanders campaign was really brought a whole, lot, whole set of issues to the, the surface um, and the growth of DSA um, and Jacobin. I think, you know, I think we should be proud of this and take some credit for it and maybe even, you know, exaggerate our role in that if, if necessary. It doesn't <laughs> hurt to, to take credit uh, where it's due or even not where it's entirely due. But um, there's also, yeah, the depths of the crisis. Um, and um, there's a COVID crisis, which really demanded ambition. You know, it just, uh, it, was, it was so uh, challenging to the stability of the system, legitimacy of the system, and to, you know, to watch people dying in the hundreds of thousands um, really um, 
and to see the Trump administration so indifferent to that, I think, you know, there's certain um, portions of civilized society that were recoiled at that and figured we needed to do something about that. Um, there's also uh, the threat of China. I think the um, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, gave a really uh, uh, rabid, hawkish uh, yeah. <laughs> address to the Chatham House, uh, Chatham House, which is the, the British equivalent of the Council on Foreign Relations, a very elite foreign policy think tank where she was going on about, you know, the evil China. It was kind of frightening. She wanted to take back the means of production from China. Which it is, is so a, good. A strange <laughs> thing. I, I can think of better ways to, to deal with the means of production, but um, than, than to have, I don't know who she wanted to, who was going to do this, who, who would be the agents of this take back, but, you know, uh, certainly not the proletariat in her, in her view. But, uh, yeah, right. but I think the threat of China, which has, you know, in many ways, it's an appalling regime. But on the other hand, they're very good at what they do. Uh, they've really uh, generated the most intense uh, and dramatic period of economic growth over decades uh, that the world has ever seen. Uh, they're gaining in technological power. They're no longer just this low-wage um, workshop. Uh, they're developing their own autonomous technological um, um, capacities. Uh, and they're becoming an increasing political and possibly military uh, rival to the United States. So I think... I think they realize, at least the more sophisticated among them, realize that some kind of more coherent state response is necessary. The market won't take care of this. Um, and also they, they see, um, they're, they're, I think, concerned about social disintegration. Uh, you, uh, even you know, among the more sophisticated people in, in, in finance and the people who think for people in finance, they're, they're, they're concerned that the level of polarization and desperation um, is is a real threat to the long-term stability of the system. Uh, and uh, I think all these things together um, are really um, pushing some kind of, of move um, in a somewhat better direction. It's not eco-socialism by any means, but it's certainly better than anything one could have imagined a year ago. And, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, we just need to push harder and get more of it. And it's very popular. People want this stuff. You know, you, the, the, mm -hmm. uh, the Biden proposals poll at 60% or more. Um, you know, it's not, and you know, so the Republicans are just yammering on about, on about critical race theory. Um, well, um, Joe right. Biden is sending you fourteen hundred dollar checks. You know, they, they're kind of weak at this point. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see more of that from Biden. I think that's the right strategy uh, for the Democratic Party, um, and. You know, it's been kind of surprising because I had incredibly low expectations uh, for the Biden administration. And to be fair, uh, some of his proposals have been good. You know, I'd like to see more, but pretty good. Yeah. Well, um, you know, like I say, we should take yeah. credit for it and demand more, you know, because it's obviously popular. Yeah. People like it. You know, people oh, like Medicare for all. You know, there are all kinds of things that they're not doing that could be done. And, uh, uh, and we should push for more. And uh, at some point, we're going to see a backlash, I guess, from, you know, the Jamie Dimon circle, but uh, we're not there yet. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to just quickly comment on Hillary Clinton's hawkish China speech. You know, <laughs> well, that's really Donald, scary. She's uh, she's terrifying. It, no, it's it, it, she is terrifying, especially on foreign policy. But, you yeah. know, it's, it's interesting because during the Trump administration, uh, Trump would get a lot of backlash in the corporate media over the fact that he would create problems and then he would give himself credit for trying to solve the problems that he created. Like, for instance, uh, you know, his awful uh, tweets uh, with Kim Jong-un early in his presidency. And then he wanted to give himself a pat on the man. back when he... <laughs> Right, right. When he wanted to engage diplomatically. I mean, this is the same thing with the, Clint, with the Clinton administration, you know, engaging in these free trade agreements, which ended up obviously putting U.S. workers at a giant disadvantage. And now she's talking about, you know, 
taking back the means of production. It's just, it's ridiculous. Anyway, just a comment on that. But the question that I wanted to ask you um, has to do with our financial system, because, you know, three years ago, you did this great interview on C-SPAN. I was watching it earlier today. And you talked about how um, the stock market is really overvalued. So when people talk about the stock market as a metric for um, economic success, it really makes no sense. A big part of the reason why it's overvalued is because the Federal Reserve is printing money, giving it to the banks, and they're investing in their own stocks. And so lately, there's been more and more talk by uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in regard to increasing interest rates. I wanted to get your thought on that, considering everything in context with our uh, financial system. Yeah, the stock market is overvalued three years ago. It's just uh, comically overvalued now. It's like really without right. precedent. I mean, if you look at some measures that go back into the 1870s, uh, the stock market has never been so highly valued. So it's 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 madness. But as you say, uh, a very important reason for that is trillions and trillions of dollars from the Federal Reserve, just free money they've pumped into the financial system. Uh, and uh, that has uh, just helped drive stock prices higher. Um, but it's also just unleashed a whole multitude of speculative bubbles of the sort. I've, I, I don't recall seeing this many simultaneous bubbles um, mm-hmm. that, uh, all, go, all going on at once, um, you know, either, either through what I've lived through or, or what I've read about. It's just, you know, usually there's one instrument, you know, like in the early mid 2000s, it was housing. Um, in the late 90s, it was the stock market. Now we've got stocks, we've got uh, um, housing, we've got um, uh, um, Dogecoin, uh, we've got sneakers, uh, there's, we've got everything has been turned into a speculative asset and all kinds of people are getting involved in this uh, this game who've never been involved before. And, you know, it's not going to end well, can't predict how it's going to end or, or when it's going to end, but it seems like it's going to end very badly because there are just a whole lot of people um, throwing a lot of money um, into uh, markets they don't really understand and think they can somehow get rich. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think the, the Federal Reserve has kind of painted it, itself into a corner. I can understand why they started pumping all this money in to start with, uh, because everything seemed to be falling apart. But um, it's hard to stop. And uh, I think they understand that if they start making noise about stopping, the markets will panic and sell off and they'll be afraid that we'll have a crash. And so uh, what do they do then? Do they let the crash go on or do they pump pump in more money? I don't know. They're really in a difficult position. And now we're also seeing um, uh, households, American households, Certainly not people at the um, who who have been struggling to make ends meet, but people in the middle and higher have been uh, saving enormous amounts of money during the pandemic. Um, they've stay, saved their stimulus checks. They've had fewer things to spend money on, so people who stayed employed have just been uh, building up their bank accounts. Uh, something like two trillion dollars in uh, uh, various forms of aid went to households over the last year or so, uh, which is. Uh, they ended up saving about almost close to 20% of it. So um, it's very likely we're going to see a, a real spending boom later in the year, which could unleash inflation, which will make um, the markets and elites very nervous. Uh, so they're going to have a real uh, difficulty on their hands coming up. And it's really hard to um, exit from one of these um, speculative bubbles, especially one that's just so gigantic and so unprecedented mm-hmm. um, and so pervasive. Yeah, I, I think related to that speculative bubble, I mean, you joked about Bitcoin, and I remember a piece you wrote about Bitcoin, uh, you know, maybe a year or two ago that that I, that I remember having a big influence on me, uh, because I, I know a lot of people who have gotten pretty 
rich like idiots who've gotten very very rich on 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 bitcoin i have a friend in miami who just sold an nft for six million dollars um you know i just i i don't know what to do and and now like uh you know in my day job i i deal with a lot of these ruling class types um and the hottest thing in the world right now for these people is is the spac and i barely understand it and and you're the left guy who who understands these kind of things so i've been wanting to ask you about it what is a spac what is it what the, what the hell's going on underneath it all like i you know like what is what is behind this kind of hot new trend and and what does it say about the health of our economy and financial markets i can't i can't believe it's i can't i can't imagine it's a good thing um bill a spac uh, is a, a what is a special purpose acquisition corporation is what it stands for um it's what used to be called the blank check company um and uh the classic example that's always quoted in um uh any commentary on these sorts of things is uh, from the, 19, the 1720 South Sea bubble in England. A company, uh, there was a circular advertising, a company for carrying on the undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is. Uh, <laughs> and that's exactly what these things are. You just, some management team or an individual manager who has some kind of star reputation, or although I guess as these things progress, they, uh, they, they get more and more um, uh, um, uh, mined from the bottom of the barrel. But um, they... Um, uh, they they say give us some money and we'll find a company to take over and everyone will be happy, um, and we'll make you a lot of money. Um, the sponsors of these things always make a lot of money. They take out a lot of money off off the, off the top, and whether their outside investors are going to make any money is is dubious. I mean, there's been some recent studies that show they're actually not making money; they're losing money. But that doesn't stop people from you know pumping more money into a thing because they think it's going to get them rich. But basically the idea is you set up this pool of money and now there are hundreds and hundreds of these things, but you set up this pool of money that's going to prowl for a company to take over and everybody's going to get rich and be happy as a result of that. Uh, the most extreme example of this uh, emerged uh, over the last couple of weeks is this deli in Southern New Jersey with had something like $13,000 in annual sales uh, that suddenly <laughs> ended up being uh, valued at $2 billion because it was really the, really <laughs> wow. the front for a takeover operation. And uh, this guy, um, some hedge fund manager, the name escapes me now, uh, wrote it. Uh, it came to everyone's attention because this hedge fund manager wrote it up. He said, the pastrami must be really good uh, <laughs> to have a, a, a valuation of $2 billion. But no, like, it seems to be some kind of operation that is looking to be a SPAC and take over some other company, but nobody really knows. But this is the kind of stuff that happens in a crazy bubble, like just nonsense like that. And um uh, you know, people who are buying Bitcoin, uh, the people who are, you know, involved in GameStop a few months ago. It's just uh, an awful lot of money chasing idiotic ideas that um, really don't do any uh, good for humanity and will um, leave um, a lot of people um, broke at the end of it. But, you know, the uh, um, the way these things um, operate is that uh, you see some other guy getting rich and you say, well, I got to do this too. And if you get your timing right, you may, you know, make yourself a little rich as well. But uh, if you don't, you're going to be left holding the empty bag. Um, the NFT thing is also amazing uh, because, you know. Yeah. They're, they're Can you trying, talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, what they're, they're trying to commodify uh, and make unique an infinitely reproduce, infinitely reproducible asset. Like, Mm-hmm. A JPEG, you can you know you can reproduce that any number of times at no cost, and it doesn't reduce. You know, if if somebody um, has a copy of my JPEG, it doesn't reduce my enjoyment of my JPEG, you know, whatever whatever that might be. But they're trying to make something so 
um, worthless, uh, um, somehow unique and valuable. It's um, it's just utterly remarkable to watch this stuff. And you know, they're environmentally disastrous. The NFT, um, the technology behind the NFT uses lots and lots of power. Bitcoin uses just tons and tons of electricity, pumps out enormous amounts of carbon. Um, but you know, somehow it gives the uh, the impression to people of being completely immaterial because it just lives virtually. But yeah, you know, they are they're extraordinarily wasteful and pointless. Um, uh, so you now you get this uh, JPEG or whatever the NFT is, um, <laughs> and somehow you own it, whatever that means, because nobody can stop it from being copied. <laughs> so what right. this ownership means, why people are willing to spend what was that? artwork that sold for 60 or 70 79 million, billion dollars or 69 billion dollars something like that I'm million, saying, one of my a million million yeah. one of my friends bought an nft for like 40 or fifty thousand dollars a year ago and sold it two months ago for six million dollars and it's like you know his his kind of his point is like yeah i can walk up to the mona lisa at the louvre and snap a picture of it and it's you can google you can google the mona lisa's picture and print it out and you can look at it on your computer whenever you want, but it is, that is not as valuable as the original Mona Lisa. And I was like, I don't like know how to answer that other than like, it just, I don't know. It doesn't, it's not the same thing, man. It's just not the same thing. Yeah, no, the, the work of art in the age of mechanical, mechanical reproduction needs a sequel. Um, it's just, we're really uh, in a very strange world. But, you know, the Mona Lisa, presumably seeing a painting in person, you get to see you know, the effects of the brushwork and subtleties that can't be reproduced on a computer screen. Um, but, you know, this NFT, uh, this artwork, is purely digital. Um, that's its original form. Uh, but you're somehow trying to make something... Um, essentially worthless in an economic sense, um, scarce and valuable. Uh, and it's just, it, it just leaves me speechless, really. It's, it's, it's bonkers. <laughs> Why people would spend 60 or $70 million. And I noticed that um, although uh, I think uh, the uh, Beeple, that's his name, right? The artist, yeah. we, ju we just saw that on the screen. Yeah, um, I believe he got Ethereum or wanted to be paid in Ethereum. Um, yeah, but uh, Christie's wanted to be paid in U.S. dollars. Christie's uh, that, that handled the, um, uh, the the auction wanted real money. Mm -hmm. Jeez, you know, earlier you talked about um, multiple bubbles taking place simultaneously. <laughs> and one of the bubbles that's pretty clear to me is this housing bubble um, that is driven up by these private equity firms who could be extremely over leveraged. Um, I was wondering if you could weigh in on that and, and, and what you predict is likely going to happen with the housing market, if you have a prediction. Well, yeah, the housing market is being driven by several things. Of course, there was the, uh, the escape from the cities during the, uh, the COVID uh, crisis, uh, which has been driving you know, people around New York into the Hudson Valley, which, which is rapidly becoming unaffordable. I saw a statistic the other day that said, I think Bloomberg ran this, uh, based on um, cost relative to income, Orlando is now more unaffordable than San Francisco as a housing market. Oh, yeah. Uh, so people have been moving to these smaller cities or um, uh, resort areas outside major cities, driving up the price for the locals and making it absolutely impossible for them to live. There was another story the other day about uh, uh, the Vermont bread company um, collapsing and uh, the uh, uh, there was some effort to get bread alone, which is um, a bakery based in the, uh, the Hudson Valley um, to, uh, to, to, to take its place uh, to um, serve some of its customers. 
And um, the bread alone people said they couldn't do it because they can't get the workers because no workers can afford to live there anymore uh, in the Hudson Valley. And they were thinking of actually buying an apartment building so that they could rent to their workers so they could afford to live there. So, you know, this um, <laughs> the, the, the housing bubble is unlike, you know, the one of 10, 15 years ago, um, the um, that was you know, being driven by lots of people borrowing too much money and uh, that they eventually couldn't afford. Um, this is, um, you know, in many cases, people going in, rich people going into small towns, buying up things for cash. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the, the private equity guys, um, they... They generally like um, to pick up the pieces after things collapse. So that's what they did after the, the 2008 housing crisis. Uh, they bought up a lot of housing, turned it into rental housing. And uh, um, as typical as, as is typical with private equity, they, uh, they, they uh, cut back on, on services, cut back on quality, uh, jacked up rents, and uh, made themselves a lot of money, but screwed uh, the, uh, the tenants. Uh, now they also seem to be buying lots of housing. Um, uh, a large percentage of transactions now are going off uh, on, the, on on a cash basis, not not which means that they're probably rich institutional investors um, uh, getting heavily involved in, in, in the housing markets. Uh, but you hear stories of people um, going to look at a house and and uh, its price rising twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in just a couple of days. Um, uh, I talked to a friend of mine who was looking for a house in Philadelphia, and uh, one of the conditions now seems to be that you want to let the people that you're buying the house from live there for a month or two. They don't have to leave yet, so you just have to like cool your heels. Um, it's just it, it's an insanely hot market, and I, this is one of the things that strikes me as the the pure irrationality of capitalism. Now we think of a healthy housing market conventionally as one in which prices are rising. You know, but housing is one of life's essentials. We don't want the, mm -hmm. the, the we don't want it to be turned into a speculative asset. We don't want it to be priced out of the um, the, the reach of, of ordinary people. But that's what's been happening all over the country um, in places, uh, you know, uh, small towns, yeah. uh, uh, medium-sized cities, um, distant resorts, all over the place. Um, people who live there are being priced out, and uh, uh, it's it's just utter madness. And how will it end? I don't know. I mean, it's just one of these things, like I said, it's just it's such a comprehensive speculative mania going on um, that it's really hard to find um, any kind of precedent for it. And another thing that happens in, in speculative bubbles that um, there's a famous saying um, uh, from Warren Buffett, you don't, you don't know uh, who's swimming without shorts until the, uh, the tide goes out. And um, that, um, that, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of people probably who are operating on really high leverage um, to play all these games, whether it's Ethereum or um, housing in the Hudson Valley or you know, um, uh, crazy speculative stocks or sneakers um, or whatever that they're speculating in. We're going to find out that an awful lot of people have uh, been borrowing lots of money um, to uh, speculate. Uh, and uh, while prices are going up, nobody notices. But once things start going down, that's when everyone notices how many um, heavily leveraged actors uh, there are. There's a, a hedge fund that fa uh, failed just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think Acheron, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, um, that had been funded heavily by a bunch of big banks, Credit Suisse um, among them. And uh, apparently they had no idea how much this hedge fund had borrowed, how much it was on the hook for. And uh, when it failed, uh, it, it, it caused big losses at, at some of these banks. And this is just one relatively small hedge fund in a time uh, when, um, you know, other hundreds of them are not failing. Uh, 
Uh, so if you started seeing you know, this, this become a trend, if you started seeing a bunch of hedge funds failing and asset prices falling, then we're going to see an awful lot of people exposed as being very, very heavily leveraged. Now, going into this, it seemed like the banking system was in much better shape than it was 10, 15 years ago. Um, and some of the Dodd-Frank reforms kept them from doing the more egregious stuff. But then there are an awful lot of other actors besides the banks who've been hedge funds and private equity guys who've been doing very reckless things. So we're going to find out um, an awful lot of carnage in, in the coming, yeah. who knows, six months, I, six years. I don't know, but it's going to be, it's going to be ugly. I just spent 10 days in my hometown of Miami. Uh, I got back uh, just a few days ago and it, it's, I can't stress enough just how insane it is there right now. Just the, the, it's the housing market is like on fire um and and it's just everything like miami is just kind of like the the nft bitcoin speculative craze in in one city just kind of all happening at the same time and it's very well, apparent miami has a long um, history of that sort of thing right yes they do um <laughs> um i want to i want to just close out uh doug you've been very generous with your time on your reaction to the uh jobs report that came out this week um it was uh, lower than anticipated by a lot of people it was like sort of somewhat disappointing about a lot of people um conservatives have been blaming the uh the dole the the, un the generous unemployment insurance uh for disincentivizing people to get back to work but even some liberals have have jumped on that train i saw noah smith uh, wrote a big piece uh, saying that it's time to end the the unemployment, uh, the coronavirus unemployment insurance. What is your reaction to the jobs report and 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 this this line of attack? Well, it was surprisingly weak, uh, and it's not entirely clear what happened. Also, I would say not to draw too many conclusions for one month's report. Some you know these things get revised. Uh, who knows what next month will bring? And there's a tendency to you know just draw out major stories based on rather thin evidence. Um, so who knows where, 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 what, um, whether this is the beginning of a, a weakening trend in, in the recovery or if it's um, um, just anomaly. Um, but I don't buy the argument that it's um, um, these, these uh, you know, the generous, overly generous unemployment checks. Uh, there's really no evidence for that. Um, and people who study this find that the, he, he, there's just no geographic pattern uh, based on the generosity of the checks that would confirm uh, the pattern of employment. No, uh, no sectoral uh, pattern either. Uh, the strongest sector in, in the, that employment report was uh, uh, bars and restaurants, uh, who added almost 200,000 new jobs. So, you know, this is where we hear all these restaurateurs having trouble finding um, employees. Uh, but uh, it, uh, uh, the, you know, they're still, um, they're still hiring very aggressively. Uh, I think, you know, that this is a situation, though, where, um, uh, you know, the restaurant industry, which is, I guess, the one that's complaining most loudly, has been notorious for low pay and crappy working conditions and rude bosses. Uh, and uh, it's quite possible that a lot of people who uh, lost their jobs in restaurants during the pandemic have decided to move on to another uh, line of work. Um, that may be the pro part of the problem. Um, and, you know, they, if they have trouble finding people to work for $10 an hour, I don't know, maybe $15 an hour might, uh, might bring people in. And if you can't pay the $15, then maybe you really don't deserve to exist. Um, uh, that's one of the things yeah. that the old Swedish social Democrats uh, used to say that, you know, if you can't pay a good wage, then you do not deserve to exist. And uh, yeah, I think that's a lot of, you know, we, we overly romanticize small businesses in a lot of cases in this uh, in mm. the United States. And uh, 
Um, yeah, I can understand the informality and the kind of cute. You know, we all like our nice little restaurants, but uh, if if they're not capable of paying a living wage, then you know they really have no uh, no 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 way to justify their existence. Um, but you know, like. I think as the year goes on, we're going to still continue to see um, job growth, employment growth. And as I, I mentioned earlier, people, households have all this money to spend. Uh, so that's going to um, you know, start uh, hitting um, pretty hard pretty soon. So I, I wouldn't say that this is um, a, a really big change, but it was kind of strange. Uh, um, there was an argument going into that employment report that we don't need all these stimulus uh, bills. We don't need, you know, Biden's infrastructure proposal. We don't need all the social spending. We don't need, you know, all the, the spending on child care uh, because the economy is healing on its own. Uh, I think uh, that um, the, the, the April employment report uh, uh, put that line uh, to sleep for at least a little while. Um, so yeah. I guess they're, they're seizing upon the overly generous unemployment checks as, as their mode of attack. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think we Obviously, you know this is these kinds of the kinds of uh, infrastructure and uh, social spending packages that Biden is talking about are for the long term, not not matters of short term uh, fiscal stimulus. Uh, and uh, you know, what one month's employment report doesn't really change those long term patterns to you know to return to where we started. Um, you know, it doesn't change the the long term patterns of social and physical rot in the United States, and uh, that. You know, what we need to do is have a longer term uh, set of uh, policies to address that uh, that social and physical rot. And these are uh, good steps in that direction. And uh, one good or bad unemployment report or employment report really doesn't change that picture. Mm. All right, um, everyone, hopefully you took advantage of our $1 subscription sale so you can check out Doug's piece, Take Me to Your Leader, The Rot of the American Ruling Class. Doug, you're amazing. Thank you so much for taking so much time to, to speak with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Oh, my pleasure too. Anytime. All right, is. take care. So Take good. So good. Very good it's piece. It's really good. Yeah, Doug yeah. is the left guy who knows about the monies. You know, we, you know, uh, that's, it's a, you, you know, we need guys like that on our team. We need guys who actually like understand how this stuff works. Um, so it's always, it's, it's good to talk to him about, about all, all, all of these things. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's, we live in a very strange time, man. It's a very crazy time. Uh, I, yeah, I, I yeah. this trip to Miami that I just did just was, incredibly uh, you just see it very huh? clearly when you're there yeah you see it very clearly when we're there it's like it's hot and you know it's yeah fun and exciting for a lot of people in the moment but like it could that hangover <laughs> it's gonna hurt yeah, it's, it's gonna hurt yeah totally. i mean it's it's crazy because you know one of my my best friend who's very risk averse like she's not the kind of person who speculates on anything like texted me this week and she's like, are you investing in crypto? And I was like, LOL, no, I'm not. Um, and, and then she was like, I made a lot of money on Ethereum. And I was like, you're investing in Ethereum? What the hell? And it's just, it's intoxicating. You see all these people making an insane amount of money, right? Yeah. And it, these get rich quick schemes seem very tempting, but just be careful yeah. out there, guys, please. Be yeah, careful. The, you know, the in a speculative bubble like this people can get very very rich and but the thing is people point to oh look look at this guy made a ton of money this investor made a ton of money on this that is not proof of the soundness of the investments <laughs> right. you know like this yep. is, 
Like people make money off bubbles all the time. That's the whole point, and that's why that's why they drive a mania. Um, and and it's not and and when the bubble bursts, it doesn't mean that everyone who made the money is going to now lose the money. You know that that just that there's going to be people who just made money and that's it. And um, you know, like when the housing market collapsed in two thousand eight, there was a lot of people who had already made a lot of money on the housing market. Yeah, they didn't necessarily lose it all. Um, it's the people who were exposed, as Doug said that 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 line that you know when the tide the tide uh, recedes, you can see who's. <laughs> swimming without shorts but uh um yep. that does that is not in and of itself proof that the thing is sound uh so um yep. yeah all right let's bring on kale our super producer how's it going hey guys hey kale what's going on how are you doing well enjoying the money talk um big money talk over at jacobin um oh yeah <laughs> you gotta spend money to make money that's what they always say right that's right Pitbull says that People, yeah, people, people be saying say it. Um, <laughs> we, uh, I'm here because we're going to do some super chats because we're yeah. live right now. And if you want to ask us a question, Are we? I thought this was a pre tape. Okay. No. Um, well, it, it's like, uh, there's several layers going on. There's, there's a live recording within a pre tape within a live recording we're yes everything i'm saying right now is pre-recorded this is a pre-recorded video i'm sending you but <laughs> other than that we're mostly live okay good the um, chat says but, your hair looks good i concur your hair uh, does look good kale's got some of the best hair i mean it's like flowy really and dreamy yeah uh, you know have you gotten any, any haircut action um during the pandemic me yeah a few times this is not this is this is not like a year's worth of of hair growing out um it's just such an effortless look kale that's what i love yeah. about it thank you that's Very uh, chic. yeah it's it takes about six hours every morning so we yeah. have um <laughs> if you want to send us a super chat please do that now um in the meantime actually before because i'm still waiting on some questions to come in i wanted to actually pull up uh an article really quick that Paul Prescott, Paul, who does our Wednesday shows, sent me this. This is um, kind of an update and kind of just a, a really awful story, unfortunately, just because things are bad. Um, but this is this was in Bloomberg yesterday Ooh. that uh, one of the Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer uh, passed away on Thursday, that their co-workers found them uh, collapsed in the bathroom. This is at work. Yeah. Uh, it's horrific. I mean, there's, I, I don't know how much we know about the incident just yet. Um, I've only seen this Bloomberg piece that, that Paul sent me and it's again, uh, just shocking and horrifying, but not surprising, uh, given everything that we know about the Amazon warehouse uh, facilities mm -hmm. and their, uh, working conditions. This is the most, I mean, this is the results of, uh, of how Amazon uh, makes a profit of pushing people to the extremes physically and mentally. Um, this is, yeah. this is why, you know, even though the, the unionization efforts that failed uh, about a month ago, um, even though it failed, uh, there's going to be a renewed effort in the future. I don't know what the, the future for Bessemer is exactly, but this is, you know, this is not uh, out of the ordinary in Amazon warehouse facilities that um, we've been hearing horror stories from around the country. Uh, this particular incident is, is maybe um, uh, unprecedented, at least in modern times, but um, it really, the, it's, 
the the level of just I don't know how draconian and and evil uh, the you know these these massive corporations have gotten in in how they treat their workers. It's something that you know we could have like read about from like a hundred years ago or something. That yeah. it it just it speaks to how uh, how much the ruling class has really won over the last 40, 50 years, um, and how little they give a shit about ordinary working people. So um, awful story. I wanted to just put you know put that up there just because. Again, you know, the if you think that the fight at, at Amazon is over, it's not at all. I mean, this is going to be a protracted issue because people's lives are constantly on the line um, working in horrific conditions. So, yeah. Yeah. No, this isn't the first yeah, time. I mean, awful. I remember the story a few years ago of um, a worker uh, collapsing and dying and his co-workers uh, because they had to continue meeting their quotas they, they they had to like literally step over the dead body to continue like uh putting packages you know out to the uh, out in the fulfillment center so yeah i mean it is it is really 19th century-esque i mean again it, it's the the matt carp point that we we really are living in a second gilded age not just in terms of inequality not just in terms of labor conditions the, the politics of our time is very similar it just i i buy that I buy that, uh, that thesis, uh, big time. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. Um, here's, um, here's a super chat that we just got in. Um, eclectic okay. yeah. says I heard, uh, or his or her daughter's seventh birthday is, uh, was this week. Um, Congratulations. Anna, has a niece. Anna, you have a niece. Um, yeah. Mando <laughs> and I, I don't have a niece. Um, I have a nephew. Mando's got a nephew. One nephew. Um, are you tempted to slip in a socialist slant when money and politics comes up or is it too much like the capitalist brainwashing in schools? Um, uh, uh, in no, what way? I, I, I bring up challenges to capitalism when I'm hanging out with my brother, a sister-in-law and nieces all the time. Um, and you know, it's funny because I, I, I deployed the tactic that Michael Brooks and Nando used on me, which is don't come <laughs> at it from like a super judgmental and like luxury um, take. But, you know, when when the opportunity arises. Right. So, for instance, if something involving like their personal finances come up. I'll just bring up like, you know, this is just how the system is supposed to work. This is how capitalism works. That's why wouldn't it make better sense if this was decommodified, right? Whatever it is we're talking, maybe it's housing. Um, and it's kind of worked, you know, I'm surprised my brother, Mr. No, I studied business. I believe in private enterprise is now, mm. um, is definitely loosening up in that ide ideology and is more, uh, willing to accept, um, you know, a socialist framework when it comes to certain things uh, like mm -hmm. healthcare, for instance, like housing. So yeah, I bring it up all the time. I mean, I don't bring it up to my seven-year-old niece per se, uh, but I think bringing it so up you, to his parents. Have you read your Gramsci today? Hmm. <laughs> right. 
Um, but she's she's a lot like me. It's she's like, a lot like me. So who knows how she's like, uh, there, There's that that joke in Thirty Rock when Alec Baldwin uh, marries uh, the uh, what's her uh, Elizabeth Banks character who's like a Fox News. She's like a Megyn Kelly type, um, and uh, they have a child, and they're like, "Did you give him? Did you do his Reagan time today?" And, you know, like they have every day. They have like Reagan. <laughs> they God. give the baby some Reagan time. Gross. Like we just gotta start giving the children some 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 Karl Marx time. We just need some Marx time and. Uh, you know, like we could play Mousetrap or whatever the kids play these days. I guess they do like Peppa Pig on the iPad or something. And then we could just slip in some, you know, Jacobin YouTube about, uh, you know, we should do like a Jacobin children's animated thing. Like explain. Uh, it would know, blow up. With like little cartoons dancing around, yeah. you know, um, that would be good. Uh, but my sister, my sister, she's a card carrying Bernie bro. We don't I don't need to do any any indoctrination um she's already she's already on the team see when i when i ask you guys to hit like and subscribe and share the video i now also mean share it with your children that just put right. the, put us on the ipad put us in front of yeah. them you go out to dinner and the kids yapping and being annoying just hand them the ipad <laughs> weekend show and imagine? they'll just like immediately become like you know yeah i think it's a great idea um let me there's um some more super chats that are coming oh, in. Oh yeah, just 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 a random super chat that you decided you. to put up on random the screen. One. You know your 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 hair does look great, Kale. <laughs> I mean, I I don't have to say anything. The super chat says it all. So, mm. um, money talks. Uh, Nando has big uncle energy. Um, <laughs> we don't have a Jacobin coin, but. Um, we I don't. Mean, if we what, are headed to so that guy that that I gave all that guy all that money. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's worthless. Bosker just tagging you back, just yeah. <laughs> telling you to invest in his new uh, his new Bitcoin operation. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, if we did really you guys are. See, sorry. Did you guys see? Um, there was a story that we talked about on TYT recently about this guy who was just like you know, he sees what's going on with crypto and he decides to like, as a joke, put out something called scam coin. He literally titled it scam coin mm -hmm. and it blew up. He made a yeah. ton of money. It's crazy. Like, go. it's just, yeah. He didn't even know how crypto worked. He like Googled right. it one day and was like, oh, I can just create it. Just created it. And it yeah. did really well. Um, let me, here's a, another one. I don't, I haven't heard about this. I don't know if either of you have um, that there was a Brazilian police raid on May 6th that killed 25 black Brazilians. I don't know if, um, if this story. I has... have not heard about it, but I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. You know, Brazil, like Colombia, has an incredibly, you know, pretty repressive police force, especially in the favelas. Um, yeah. So, yeah, not surprised. I don't know the story, the particulars about the story, but yeah. Yeah, yeah same. But just I mean, going off of the story that, um, or the decode rather that Anna uh, gave us earlier, I mean, this is like what what she was talking about in Colombia is not uh, that much you of mean, an abnormality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's there's. Um, I mean, this is this is the the challenge, I guess, for the left, and you know, in some ways, the the American left is, um, in some ways, you know, our society is um, less violent than others. And in some other ways, it's just as violent um, that obviously we have uh, a horrifically brutal, uh, you know, police uh, state in this country as well. 
um, but it takes a different form. And so this is going to be the challenge, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, how does the left organize working people? Um, we're thinking across a number of different things. We're thinking of like, how do we organize, um, for instance, people that are in the informal sector, which is a massive challenge in the global South right now, where so many people um, don't have typical work contracts with employers in the way that um, is a little bit more common, although becoming less so in the global North. Um, but it's these other questions of like, how do we deal with different levels of state repression? Um, and uh, it's, I mean, I think it's, it does require us thinking creatively about new strategies of how to, how to effectively combat this because, you know, and I don't think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm fully, you know, for the most part, I think it's going to mostly be through peaceful means and measures because, of course, like we're just not going to be able to take on the like the police states. But um, but these are these are the questions that we have to figure out. Like, how do how do you rebuild the left in an increasingly militarized and repressive world? Um, mm. Yeah. Also, the people want to know what shampoo and conditioner you use. I didn't see that super chat. Um, it's in there somewhere. I don't know if it was a super chat. It might have been a regular chat, but uh, mm, well, maybe um, maybe uh, if it was a super chat, they would get an answer. Mm, okay. um, I wanted to pull this one up. <laughs> um, that yeah. undecided uh, mentions that they worked at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island. That they quit and got a job as a data analyst for a startup tech company. But then three months later, Amazon bought that company, and that they were pissed. I mean, that's. Um, that's yeah, the Leviathan, right? I mean, Amazon is the is the big Borg. I mean, they are the they are the to me like the scariest corporation just because they're just taking over everything. Um, yeah. Well, but they're um, also. I mean, this is the in some ways. So obviously, that's true that there is kind of this um, centralization of, of companies that you do get these massive behemoths like Amazon. But at the same time, um, the fact that the conditions are still so horrendous internally, where they are still pushing workers to work as fast as they can, as hard as they can. And, um, you know, and it ends up having massive costs on the people that are working there. Um, it also speaks to the fact that Amazon is still in competition. So they're in competition with companies like Walmart, um, various other uh, kind of subdivisions of Amazon are probably in competition in smaller marketplaces. But um, again, so it's, we can say two things at once. We can both say Amazon is kind of a, a unique world historic, horrific company um, with an incredible amount of power. Uh, and yet, you know, a lot of the, like how horrible it is, is still just, this is just how companies operate on a market. It's just how yeah. competition works. And so mm. I think it's, I think the left has to effectively understand it from both of those frameworks of, you know, how mm. is, how is Amazon unique in its power and in its reach? And then how is it in fact, actually not that unique. And, um, and so this is ultimately when we think about like, what kind of society do we actually want? I mean, it's, it's not just, oh, we get rid of, let's say, let's say an Amazon unionization drive is effective and does succeed. Um, and we do have some curtailments of the boss's power in Amazon. There's going to be other companies that are going to be in similar situations as well. And so we have to like, it's, this like is whack-a-mole. Yeah. Well, this is like, it, we're not just anti-corporate, we're anti-capitalist because we think that there's something structural about the economic system that creates these situations. It's not just like, 
one or two bad actors that that mm-hmm. um, even though Amazon is in a situation where it is kind of the the greatest beneficiary of the system right now might not always be. And there will be other ones, just as there's been other companies in the past that have had, you know, such power and such um, despotic abilities over their workers. Uh, so maybe I'm just making a little nerdy point, but mm. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right about that. hundred percent. You know, I don't know if I want to bring this up right now. We have limited time. I'm going to hold. Okay. Never mind. Right. We'll, any we other, any other super chats? <laughs> yeah. Let me last couple. Um, uh, let's see. There was this one. This might be opening a can of worms. So I don't know how much we're going to say about this, but um, this person has asked, loved watching since I was in seventh grade. Um, I don't know if you are now in eighth grade, but we only started this show about a year ago. So wow. um, really okay. smart. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of saltiness directed toward me because people think this is TYT. This is not TYT. This is a different company run by different people. It's Jacobin. So don't get mad at me, Kale. I, I'm not the one doing this, okay? It's just that I can't escape that branding. Oh, no, <laughs> that I want to, but <laughs> it's a huge part of my brand, un- unfortunately. So No, I'm not mad. Um, um, and this yeah. person doesn't seem to be either, that they loved watching. Um, well, that's just, true. That's true. But they they actually, I'm, I am also, I'm being a little, um, uh, as the British would say, cheeky. But um, they are now finishing <laughs> college and working. And they were wondering what we think about Afro-pessimism. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with. Yeah, that kind of a little thought. bit. The, it, it's I'm not like at all. It's the Clarence Thomas thing where he was a he was like a, a left wing radical um, in his youth um, and was kind of what they would call like a race pessimist. Um, and and he eventually kind of moved to the right uh, as a result, like as a result of that Afro pessimism. I mean, I feel like ta Coates also is kind of an Afro pessimist in that like it's um, it's this feeling that like uh, that the racial that the racial kind of what to call it like animosity or, or, or the, you know, white supremacy or whatever is so immutable um, that, that there's nothing to be done about it and that you might as well kind of like, like not accommodate to it, but like in a way, if you can't beat him, join him. So not, not that quite that, but it's Mm -hmm. something like that. That's what it kind of leads to in a lot. I mean, in the case of Clarence Thomas, for for sure. Um, But um but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think that that's like something that we should, that's something that like we should try to avoid, right? That, I mean, obviously there are, there is racism and there's all that stuff, but like we can't see it as this, as this supernatural immutable force that is impossible to overcome. Um, you know, they always say that, that that's the reason why, you know, uh, Scandinavia has social democracy. It's because, oh, look, this is just Rachel, it's very homogenous, you know, and therefore they're able to do it. I mean, that narrative has kind of been, is is, is messier than than that, but it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't just accept that, oh, well, if there's a multiracial society, you can't do that. You can't have any sort of uh, cross-racial solidarity. Um, right. This is like... Um... In the, in the same way that someone like uh, the late, great Mark Fisher would invoke uh, the idea of capitalist realism, that um, mm-hmm. people have an inability to conceive of a society beyond capitalism, that, yeah. um, and that capitalism as a, as a social phenomenon, it's not a, it's not a natural 
force in society. It's not like a mountain. It's something that is socially created and recreated. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's just, it's become so powerful that it's, it's almost hard to imagine anything but capitalism. Um, Hmm. and, uh, and he was writing in a somewhat different, uh, economic and political situation, basically like pre Bernie, um, where like a lot of people actually in this country have been able to say, Oh wait, actually, no, the, the way the market operates is not how everything in my life has to operate, that there's certain aspects of life that shouldn't be bought and sold as commodities in a market, that maybe healthcare should be a human right or housing should be a human right. Um, so uh, I think in some ways it's, it's as strong as it is, um, you know, socially possible. And, um, and Bernie's was, you know, in the same, in, in with regards to kind of, um, you know, just the the brutality and kind of overwhelming power of capitalism. He's been able to, you know, certainly not overcome that, but has been able to maybe deflate that power somewhat. But and there's now a, a large number of people in this country that say, and around the world, who say, actually, no, we we can fight for something better. And so I, I'm making the analogy because I think there is a similar process that happens and keeps on happening. Um, it changes over time because it's a social thing, but with kind of a race realist uh, framework of well, socially, there are there are races in, in the world and what there are will always be there. And you can't really challenge that framework that like a racial worldview. Um, you can only do the best within it. And that's kind of a lot of what Afro pessimism redounds to of just um, you can't ever really uh, fundamentally get rid of racism. And so the best you can do is find a way to live with it. Um, and uh, I don't think that's true, actually, because I yeah. race is Malcolm not... X. I mean, Mal- it's it's you end up with in, Malcolm X. Uh, the you know we need like a homeland uh, for uh, for Black Americans. You know what I mean? Like that 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 kind of thing. Right. Um, that's where that kind of leads to. That there is no there is no hope for um, multiracial democracy. It's just yeah. it's just impossible. You just need to you know find this a homeland. Is- this is um, what um, the uh, scholar uh, Preston Smith has talked about um, of this move away from social democracy into something called racial democracy. Um, this is like the same thing with like Garveyism. Um, there's it's had different iterations over time, but there's just as many and actually far better examples throughout history um, where we have been able to reject uh, kind of a race realist framework where we can say actually. Race is something that is socially created and we don't have to keep creating it and we can fight back about against that, um, that we can have universal uh, principles and rights, that we can see people as fully human that, um, that of course, have uh, diversity, that have, you know, different ideas, different cultures, but that fundamentally all the way down at the bottom, we are all human and I mean, that's like the greatest ethos of the civil rights movement in this country was that. That's what um, uh, A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin and MLK, especially at the at the end of MLK's life, um, as he moved more, uh, as he moved closer to, to Rustin and Randolph, um, that's the ethos that was driving that, that said, uh, you know, we need civil rights. And then beyond that, we need um, an economic uh, bill of rights effectively. That um, This is what they were pushing for with the freedom budget. Um, so it's, we have really good examples of when the left uh, was fighting for these things and was able to be back this kind of um, dogmatic position on, um, you know, well, because 
racism is obviously real, therefore race has to also be real and, and we just have to live with this horrible um, social phenomena when in reality we don't have to. But it's not gonna just, ha it's not, we're not gonna get rid of a racial worldview just by snapping our fingers and everyone going, oh, well, I guess we don't believe it anymore. Like it, it does take massive social forces. It does take um, massive political efforts, but in the same way that race has a historic starting point um, that we can actually, and anthropologists have done a lot of work on this, like we actually know when race started historically, um, I think it has a life and it will die at some point. And, um, but that it's largely gonna be the, the left um, one of our historic missions, I think, is ultimately to to combat a racial worldview and to and to reaffirm universalistic principles that um, we all are deserving of a good life and that we can all live together uh, socially egalitarian, equally egalitarianly. Um, so maybe maybe I'm a little optimistic, but I'm also a socialist. So I don't know. Alrighty, uh, kids. Oh, we got one more. Let me throw that one up. I'm probably missing some other ones because I'm just ranting on screen. Um, but um, here, I'll put this one up. Kernel coin, mm. corn-based cryptocurrency sounds <laughs> great. That's a great place to end. Um, thanks, everyone. I don't know if the comments are mad at me now, now or not, but um, <laughs> we'll find out later. Um, thanks, guys. Uh, and uh, yeah, happy. have a good weekend. <laughs> Thanks, Kale. Um, and and seriously, Kale deserves a lot of credit because Nando and I were very naughty this morning, submitted very our naughty. work very late, <laughs> and yep. requested a lot. So um, we wouldn't be able to do this without Kale's hard work. So thank you to him. And thank you to all of you for watching and supporting. Please share this video. It's one of the best ways to help get the message out there. We want to expand the audience to get the message uh, to as many people as possible. Nando, any final thoughts before we go? Uh, no, just have a nice weekend, you know, everyone get through rest and uh, have fun. Oh, also, shout, right. out, shout out Ben Mora and his great oh, teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Prime Foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, everyone have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.